This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Kenwood. We are committed to providing modern turnkey critical communication solutions for today and the future. Hello and welcome back and thank you for tuning in to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, by now, everyone's told us how the war on drugs has failed so miserably. And uh, today we might get some answers to the failed U.S. drug policy, maybe a different tact. Drug advocates, they've had their say and they've convinced lawmakers and some voters in some states that the only way out of our drug problem is by legalizing drugs. Well, some areas of the country have adopted harm reduction policies to allow for illegal or illicit drugs and the related behavior in order to minimize risk to the greater communities. That's that's the that's the rhetoric. Well, clearly that strategy leaves much to be desired with drug drug overdose fatalities at an all time high no pun intended, across America. And, and I'm saying it here in California, in San Francisco, my hometown, we had 699 overdose deaths on the streets of San Francisco in 2020. Well, what's the answer? My guest today is an expert on the subject. He's authored publications and books uh, for law enforcement officers, including The Police Officer's Guide to the Fourth Amendment and Miranda, the Investigator's Guide to Search and Seizure, as well as the Prosecutor's Guide to the Fourth and Fifth Amendment Motions to Suppress. He's also the author of the Oklahoma Drug Prosecutor's Desk Reference. Brian Serber has also written over 25 additional resources and numerous articles for law enforcement publications. Well, currently, Brian Serber is the first assistant district attorney for the 12th Judicial District for Rogers, Mays, and Craig Counties in Oklahoma. He was formerly a special agent with the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics assigned to the Tulsa office. He graduated from Oklahoma State University in 1993 and the University of Oklahoma College of Law in 1996. After graduating law school, he served as an assistant district attorney and director of the 8th District Drug Task Force for eight years. And in 2004, he went to work for the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics as the deputy general counsel, primarily supervising and prosecuting wiretap cases and overseeing practitioners registered with the Bureau. Well, Mr. Serber is currently a special assistant United States attorney for the state of Oklahoma. And thanks for being with us today, uh, Brian Serber. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. Big fan of the show. Big fan of your writings. Well, that's great. So, yeah, I mean, we're not hearing a lot from uh, law enforcement leaders on why the idea of uh, a legalized or um, decriminalized drug policy is such a great idea. And thanks for fighting the fight and taking cases and prosecuting those that need to be held accountable. What's your motivation uh, to fight this unpopular fight in light of the popular attitude? You know, Jim, I'm, I'm coming up on 25 years being in law enforcement, uh, almost all of it in some way dealing with uh, drug enforcement and uh, drug laws, whether it's at the Bureau or be a, a prosecutor assigned to a drug task force. And so as I've seen a lot of trends that have happened in the last 25 years, if, if we have to, to evaluate what is the biggest public safety threat, and that's something that you and I do, the law enforcement does, uh, to me right now, it is actually uh, the policies that are, are being advocated uh, and being successfully implemented in a lot of places that in clearly are a uh, are based on a lot of uh, false information. And there are some people, certainly you're one, Jim, I, I appreciate that. There are a lot of law enforcement people that speak on this topic, but uh, for some reason, it's, it's not something we do. Law enforcement's a very mission-driven uh, culture. Give us the rules, we go out and enforce that. And so we've really kind of, in, in my view, gotten behind in the inf- information game and been outdone by those that have kind of spread these ideas. And so... 
about a year ago, I was just uh, complaining about this to my wife and uh, she was a, a prosecutor as well uh, before she left the DA's office. And, uh, and uh, as we discussed some of that, uh, she said, you know, why don't you write a book? So I started that it was about a, uh, a year, which is based uh, all of the, exposing all the fallacies of, of criminal justice reform on a lot of levels. Uh, just kind of finished that. It's, it's uh, at, at the copy editor now. But uh, uh, then I kind of dive into that, kind of use my spare time uh, looking into that and really alarm me more than uh, just kind of being somebody involved in 25 years. Once you kind of look into those what's going on and the, uh, uh, the histories of success of failures of these ideas historically and contemporarily, it's, it's more alarming than I even kind of thought having been in it a quarter century. So you work on highlighting. So, so that's, that's some of your background. You, you've got this, um, this energy towards fighting the fallacies and exposing the fallacies about this failed uh, drug policy that, that's sweeping the nation. Now you highlight uh, issues on the Fourth and Fifth Amendment that suggest uh, that law officers need to sharpen our skills when it comes to getting searches and seizures in order. Also to keep in mind while gathering evidence and interrogating suspects, is today's law enforcement officer, are we doing enough in our police academies? Are, are we giving these officers the tools they need uh, at the start of their careers? You know, Jim, that, that's a, a great question. It's a, a complicated answer, very simple question and, and a uh, very multifaceted answer. I, I would say uh, kind of yes and no, kind of sound like a lawyer here. Um, if, if you look, one of my favorite things to do uh, at this point in my career is actually uh, having dealt with searches and seizures in some form or fashion the last uh, 25 years. I really enjoy kind of speaking about that to, uh, to law enforcement and uh, in, in some kind of training class capacity, writing something that, that helps uh, them do their job. If I had to say, where are we in law enforcement with the Fourth Amendment right now? Um, if you look at the context of when it was passed in the Bill of Rights, I mean, obviously there were concerns about uh, the crown going in people's houses. I think we've done a pretty good job of, of training police officers for the most part. Now, the difficulties is, is that there's been this massive, I mean, every social problem, and I've seen this in my career, that, that the criminal justice system is, is basically become a social welfare program and has expanded kind of what police officers and prosecutors do. I wish we, we could just you know, up or down, did someone commit a crime? Can we prove it and kind of go on? We've uh, kind of gone in, into that. But with that, I think there's a, uh, th there's been a, uh, a decent amount of, of training for, for uh, police officers. Probably there might need to be more with, uh, with prosecutors uh, in, in working with cops all over 25 years. But the Fourth Amendment says that the conduct has to be reasonable. I, I've really found I'm not seeing unreasonable conduct, but translating that what they do into either reports of the courtroom or prosecutors and, and the court uh, personnel appreciating that. It's kind of one of the challenges. And that's where I try to kind of focus is how we can both uh, let the, the court system know in the sterile environment of a courtroom when you know what the end is what it's like for police officers and police, police officers to know what it's like for there. So I think there has been, but I think there's a lot of progress that can be made uh, with kind of just communicating between operators on the ground and then uh, people in a courtroom the next day. So if I look at this, this um, progression uh, in a timeline, so you, you talk about identifying the problem, locating the source, Police officers are trained to write good warrants, conduct good seizures, uh, interrogations, give prosecutors enough to take those things, put them all together and make for a good prosecution. So you've written the, the, the books on uh, conducting those good Fourth and Fifth Amendment uh, searches and seizures. What about when it transitions to the prosecutors? What should, what should law enforcement officers know about that process? You know, I've I've uh, I've kind of uh, basically swam in both ponds. I, I was a, a, a prosecutor first, and uh, for about eleven years before I became an agent. So I saw eleven years of of, uh, of, of seeing what challenges were made uh, to police officers. I or I'm sorry, uh, in court, 
that uh, were that, that again, the, the officer may not be there. We, we just our window to what happens is kind of the report. So I saw that. Then I go out in the field and and um, and I, I basically all my eight and a half years as an agent, I tried to um, create whether I was, I was writing a, I'd write a warrant as if I wanted to defend it in court. I wrote a report as if I would want how I'd want to read it, organize it, knowing what is needed there. Um, and uh, just knowing what things are relevant. And so, and then I kind of get back into prosecuting the last six years. Um, and, and so what I, I, I try to do is, is having done that kind of, uh, I sometimes say I'm bilingual. I mean, they're, they're different. Uh, they're different groups. They're the, the warrior class is, is probably what, what drives people to be, uh, the guy you want, look, there's an Amber Alert, they kidnap your daughter, the operators you want out there in there. Those guys are not necessarily driven to actually just write reports. That's just who they are. And, um, and, and they do. And so that um, kind of understand that each one kind of appreciates the challenges uh, of the other. I, I do think there is uh, one thing that you see in, in district attorney's offices. And I don't know about California, but in, in a lot of, of places, and, and we face this in our office, there is a high turnover rate. And so we don't have people that uh, in law enforcement, when people get in um, to maybe like one of you at San Francisco PD, they might stay 20, 25 years and they'll kind of go through that route. There's a high turnover rate. And so what that leads to is some, oftentimes I see we have police officers that are very well versed on how to document a knock and talk. How to, how to conduct an interview and, and, and what to do and what to denote for a Jackson Dental hearing. I think we've done a pretty good job. There may be some deficiencies, but uh, on the prosecutor side, and, and that's a challenge that, that, that different administrators face because, uh, you know, there's the, the dockets go on. I mean, there's, there's uh, you have to have someone there to kind of cover that and people get kind of baptized by fire. And so, um, and oftentimes drug cases, it, it, it's, uh, you know, you might assign specially, uh, very specialty prosecutors to crimes against children, ICAT cases, uh, homicides, uh, and there should be. I mean, those are very important. They're very unique cases. Oftentimes that, that they'll treat a drug case that, that these uh, drug task forces or special investigation divisions are working, these complex cases, uh, kind of to a general felony prosecutor has to do everything, burglaries, uh, uh, thefts. DUIs in a general felony uh, assignment. Well, the, the law with, you have to understand both the law that, that deals with that. And you kind of have to understand that there are trends that uh, habitual criminals, uh, enterprises, conspiracies do, and you have to kind of learn that. And so that's kind of, that's kind of a challenge I see uh, with uh, on the prosecution side. And I, 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 uh, that's why I kind of gravitate towards doing as much as I can to kind of get that information out there uh, in writing and guides, because I, I think that's very important and it's kind of missing. And, and I think it's uh, it's a partnership. Um, look, the best cops in the world are nothing without a good prosecutor. Best prosecutors in the world are nothing without a good investigation. And so I, I, that, that kind of symbi symbiotic relationship is very important if we really care about public safety. And I, I try to do as much as I can to kind of make each one appreciate the, the needs of the other so that in the end, uh, we can kind of target those those habitual offenders and make our community safer. Yeah. Well, I see what you did there. You spun the table on me and, and you talked about the importance of the experienced uh, law enforcement officer and our, our narc cops, the, the drug cops are just so versed and so well at what they do. And I, and I hear what you say, and it gives me a different perspective that the prosecutors, um, you know, I think when I think of the drug prosecutors, I think about the best ones we have. But then you you remind me that sometimes we get that that entry level prosecutor and it really takes the law enforcement officer, whether they're a drug specific officer or not, to break down the case and and maybe remind the prosecutor some things that uh, we need to do to ensure successful prosecution. So that's that's a really great point. And then also to your point about writing books, uh, I guess they're not just for law enforcement officers, but um, you know, are you talking with your fellow prosecutors about uh, you know their CTs or their continuing education in in their law practice, or do you recommend them reading books like yours that give the the law perspective, the law enforcement perspective? You know, Jim, I'd say a combination um, thereof. If uh, one of the problems, if you 
talk about a, a rank and file district attorney's office. And, and again, I, I've identified a problem. I'm not sure I've fully identified a solution because I, I know what it's like. I mean, uh, they're overworked, underpaid, a high turnover rate, and, and a bunch of cases kind of come in. So uh, the idea of having uh, the uh, time to kind of sit down and read and catch up on the law, that's just currently keeping up with it, uh, it is something that um, it's just kind of a challenge. And, and again, when you're kind of brand new, uh, then uh, in the DA's office uh, or deputy DA's, whatever uh, format you have, then there's, there's, there's just a lot to learn, just the basic procedure stuff to kind of not go in and uh, making objections. I mean, law school doesn't teach you, it, it, it's theoretical on the law. There's very little about law school that teaches you how it actually uh, happens in the courtroom and, and how you do that, uh, whether you call it motion practice. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. So uh, yes, I, I think they could. I, I think self-educating uh, is something that uh, uh, they can do. I have been, and look, I've loved this career. There are a lot of talented prosecutors that have mentored me that, that, that uh, we know. I mean, we're, we're becoming a smaller and smaller group, uh, it seems like. Um, and so you get to kind of know uh, that. I mean, I, I, I'm that kind of point in my career when, you know, I, a lot of people I see, I see them at funerals and retirements that have been mm -hmm. like, people I've dealt with a lot of time. And, and so, uh, so I, I, I try to kind of, as much as we can, appreciate uh, where it is. And, and because I've been blessed enough to be uh, in this field for 25 years, I, I've had tremendous uh, supervisors that have kind of taken the, the bit out of my mouth and let me kind of do some of these out-of-the-box things. Uh, but so, but it, I, I do think I kind of understand. I, I know what things are kind of coming up, uh, like the one of the things you mentioned, the drug prosecutor's desk reference. It, that was, it's kind of a summary, but I, I know the routine things that come up, issues that come up that, uh, and, and so kind of a quick reference with quotes in the law to kind of use that um, uh, uh, in doing. And so um, I've, uh, that's why I've kind of gone towards, again, doing resources because I, I, I generally have kind of seen that what things are important. And that's why I try to kind of focus on those and get those out because uh, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's hard and as much as I can do, uh, that's the, the great thing about being in, in public safety. And, and I've, I've been on a state narcotic association and uh, an executive board, got, got to go all, uh, all over the country, uh, meet people and, and do that. It's shocking to me. It doesn't matter where you are on what your state's politics are. Got police officers are the same. And so I really, really, of all the things right now, I really, really feel for our brothers and sisters that are police officers in these jurisdictions where, they're just, they're, they're doing criminal justice. They're the exact same uh, cut there as exactly like us uh, in, in terms of that. And it's got to be just absolutely, it's very demoralizing for us. And we have a great support system uh, in my state of Oklahoma uh, mm -hmm. with the community, uh, with the legislature. But this, this overall, this kind of uh, narratives that are going on that are false. It's just, there's never been a lower time of morale in, in, in my uh in my uh, career, that's kind of why I've kind of got towards I, the, that, uh, you know, uh, I think getting information out, but just transitioned a bit more recently to criminal justice reform, because that, that is a significant threat. The normalization of drugs uh, and these notions that, uh, I mean, I mean, theories that are just that the notion that, you know, people will commit less crime if you make it legal. That some guy said, I, I go, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't want to break in that car. If it were only a misdemeanor, I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I would stop him. It, because it's a felony, it, it's so ridiculous, yet it's just repeated. It's kind of like that George Orwell. There, there's some ideas that are so stupid, only an intellectual could believe it. And uh, so that's where that is. And I've kind of gone towards uh, focusing kind of my spare time. And, and uh, unfortunately, you know what it's like being in public safety and having a completely jacked up sleep schedule. It makes me think about it now because I get kind of more wound up, but that's at least where I'm, uh, you know, where I'm at right now. Well, well, let's get, let's get to that in a second, but first I'd like to acknowledge our sponsor. Be right back. At Kenwood, we make sure first responders have mission critical radio systems that work no matter what. When the mission is critical, no one has time for complexities or static or system failures. It has to work perfectly in the worst conditions. That's why Kenwood focuses on innovating, developing, and implementing the highest quality secure communication solutions to organizations whose mission is to protect and save lives. 
We ensure you will always have the lifeline you need when you need it. We make safe simple. Visit us online at www.efjohnson.com. And I'm back, and we are speaking with Brian Serber, who is the first district attorney in the 12th Judicial District. Excuse me, he's the special assistant United States attorney for the state of Oklahoma. I want to get that right. And so, Brian, you're, you're trying, you're starting to lean into the, the meat of, of our issue today. And you talk a little bit about the normalization of drug use. And um, boy, you hit it on the head. If you come to California, you'll see billboards that uh, they're, you know, quote, harm reduction billboards that talk about doing safe uh, needle injection and having a party and making sure you know, it's sort of like a um, designated driver, right? Make sure somebody's holding on to that naloxone or Narcan injector. Uh, so let's party up, but make sure somebody's got that. I mean, it's crazy these days. And you make these parallels in your book. One of your books talks about, um, you talk about Congress approving prohibition way back in 1919, lasting through 1933. And we know that critics of the 18th Amendment point to the Volstead Act as partially being um, responsible for the awful consequences, whether it's from, you know, bathtub gin to health hazards, speakeasies, organized crime, <laughs> even the the creation of NASCAR from uh, from bootleggers running from uh, you know the law enforcement agencies in, in the hills of Oklahoma and places like that. So you talk about the impact on alcohol in America and how actually there were some successes. Uh, talk about that a bit, would you? Sure. Um, you know, I'll tell you, Jim, I would probably lead with this completely ridiculous comparison of legalizing drugs to prohibition. And there's a, a number of, of, I mean, look, we've all heard the quote so many times, like it's, you know, some kid uh, in his intersectionality group at a, at a uh, student union says, we've tried prohibition. It didn't work. All right. Okay. So they're, they're going to quote uh, their other, their, their main point of legalizing drugs is uh, amendments related to alcohol a hundred years ago. I mean, as if we don't have current experiments with that. So let, let's unpack that. Okay. Let's say prohibition didn't work. Okay. Well, well, again, like many things, when you have propaganda, you redefine old words. What do you mean it didn't work? I mean, alcohol consumption went down dramatically during prohibition. And again, I'm not advocating for prohibition, but if it, it actually did reduce alcohol consumption. It reduced uh, uh, significantly. Um, the, uh, the, if, if you look at a lot of the hospitalization emissions for alcohol psychosis, it was cut in half. And again, so if you say, did, did prohibition reduce alcohol consumption? Yes, it did. Look, organized crime existed before it existed after. The notion that, that these weed dealers and meth dealers said, oh, I want to pay my FICA and unemployment insurance. I, I, oh my God, I want to actually pay my taxes. If I could only do this, it, it's, just, it, it's just nonsense. Now, again, a couple of things just to kind of illustrate this point further. Okay, alcohol is in no way like addictive psychoactive compounds. I mean, are, are they both intoxicants? Yes, probably the similarities in there. It's real simple. If you just said, hey, that, uh, uh, you know, that if you have a 21 year old child and they, and you hear, hey, uh, my child consumed a beer, number one. Number two, you hear, uh, my child just mainlined heroin. Are you gonna have the same reaction? Of course not, why? Because heroin is different. There are, if you think about alcohol, look, there might be recreational alcohol users. It, it, it assumes that the use rates are the same. Uh, there, there are other economic black market arguments that, that have actually not shown that, but uh, shown that any, anything that black market would disappear. But uh, the use rates, I mean, the, the use rates of, of, uh, uh, of drugs have gone up dramatically in states that have legalized. I mean, th there's one in 15 alcohol users uses daily. In Oregon right now, 31% of people who use marijuana use marijuana daily. Uh, it, it, the, the American Society of Addictive Medicine wrote, wrote a white paper uh, on this. And the point is this, is once you legalize something, you reduce the perceived threat and use rates skyrocket. And here's what else we know. 
that, that it is as if drug use is in a vacuum. There's this notion that uh, a drug user is just someone that, 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 uh, uh, that if you're going to go on, if you're going to go on the pipe, you know what I'll do? I think I'll quit paying my gym dues and it can't eat out as much. It's nonsense. Uh, look, people don't break into cars and to, to pay their tuition. They're not stealing copper at, at housing developments uh, and catalytic converters for the platform. They're not doing that to go buy the tuition at San Francisco State. That's not, that's not what's going on. They're doing it. And, and, and people, look, we've reduced our society to where uh, everything's about kind of a meme and a soundbite. Uh, are you for not having low-level first-time offenders fill up prisons? Well, hell, it's not going on right now in the first place. But they, they, they manufacture a crisis. And do that. And, and look, nobody walks out. Nobody walks out and sees their car broken into and, and everything torn apart for the change or the, the their kid's backpack that, 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 that's in there. Nobody walks out, even a, even the most left of, of individuals. Oh, my goodness. Somebody needs treatment. It, 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 it's easy to say that when you're talking the abstract. But the real life consequences are it, there are tremendous, whether it's child abuse, whether it is, is uh, uh, the uh, opiate addicted people, the, the number, there's a, children, a child born every 15 minutes in the U.S. going through opiate withdrawals. You know, I, I kind of say in the book, can, we at least, can they at least be a footnote in these analysis of drugs and say, say what about that? But uh, the, the drug, the driving that is going on in Oregon and Washington, the this, this skyrocketing number of, of uh, marijuana impaired driving and fatality accidents, I mean, does that at least, can you at least acknowledge that if, if you do this, there are consequences and externalities. And so it's just false. And, and the last thing I say about this is, is I'll, I'll just uh, say a word, meth labs. You, you've been in the game quite a bit, meth labs. All right. Why didn't someone ask, where did the meth labs go? You, you go from, the, we've had a couple of runs with those. Uh, the main one was kind of the Uncle Fester meth lab craze where they were buying at truck stops. That was pretty much about starting in 98, 2004. We don't have them anymore. I mean, the cost, of, the damage to society, the cost of children. I mean, the, the, all the people that were going to prison for manufacturing, the child abuse. The, in Oklahoma, did a study, 70% of kids in meth labs tested positive for methamphetamine. They're made wards of the state. The cleanup costs, how it derailed other enforcement. We don't have meth labs anymore. You think somebody would just ask, where did the meth labs go? How about that? I mean, and, and, uh, and I know, I know they don't know because they don't do this every day. I know exactly what happened because I was a drug prosecutor when it happened. We all said that pseudoephedrine is the main ingredient. We all knew that. It, 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 it's actually not an ingredient. It's a reduction reaction, kick off an OH, and, and you have base methamphetamine. It's when a guy with a, a mullet and three teeth can cook meth. It's that easy. <laughs> Law enforcement said, if you control pseudoephedrine, and do that, then it will, it will go. And, and we've done that. And, and, and it was the passage of a law. Say prohibition to work. Guess what? We prohibited meth. We prohibited the main component, the list one chemical, pseudoephedrine from, from, from uh, methamphetamine and manufacturing methamphetamine. We did prohibit it. And guess what? We didn't just knock it down. We eradicated it. 99.9% of meth labs. We don't have those anymore. And all of these people that want to push reforms, don't worry about that. Because law enforcement solved the problem. For whatever reason, we have facts inconvenient to their narrative. I can say the same thing about synthetic. You know, go back six years. That all, that all these, the, these synthetic cannabinoids, the JWH18, all the ones that happened. Uh, selling convenience stores, call it K2 and Spice. It was a scourge. It was a scourge of the nation at the time. We don't have that. Why? DEA actually went and, and uh, by administrative rule, outlawed them. We did targeted enforcement at convenience stores. You know, law enforcement made it suck to actually sell that to kids at 20 bucks a gram. Like you call it an incense, but it's like, you know, the funky monkey or the purple Kong. I mean, we did that, uh, address that of the people selling it and it's gone and no one, they don't have to worry about that. I mean, yeah, guess what? It's no, it's no wonder that drug legalization advocates, their, their best evidence is amendments relating to alcohol a hundred years ago, because every fact we have, and, and you can go back, we've decriminalized. I mean, it's like, guys, these, these cities and locations, and, and bless your heart, Jimmy, you're in San Francisco, and, and I feel for you because I cited in the book, okay? I mean, San Francisco, I think, is, is it like 80,000 poop calls a day? I mean, the, the mental illness going on in, in San Francisco is, it's not just like the routine, okay, the guy is depressed. I mean, people, severe psychosis, and uh, that we have in severe drug addiction and needles. And, 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 and the, the, what's amazing is how fast the decline accelerates. Pick a city, 
pick a city, Portland, Seattle. Um, you can say San Francisco. Uh, and, and sometimes it's laws with Proposition 47. Sometimes it's DAs not enforcing law. If you, if you curtail enforcement anyway, crime skyrockets. And it happens in, in a note. It makes your community noticeably different. And so, uh, so uh, but yeah, again. I, so if I could just stop you there, Brian. So to get into the mechanics. So some of the, you know, you talk about 1998 to 2004 about the meth labs and, and some of our listeners um, may have missed that, um, that era of, of just the impact that meth had um, on our society. And, and you talk about, I guess, the will of the people finally to say, okay, enough, you know, we're, there's a severe impact on our uh, medical community and in public, right? With these, the, you know, these zombies walking around, breaking into cars to, to get their meth uh, fix. And then they, they create these meth labs. And so the public will said, okay, enough, uh, law enforcement, do your thing. And to the point where you talked about the um, Sudafed, Sudafed being the base for the, the bathtub meth, right? And so we made it hard for the general public to go in. You can't buy 20 packs of Sudafed anymore and, and take it home and turn it into meth. So uh, it's a minor inconvenience, um, but your suggestion that it, it curtailed the problem is terrific, right? And so why don't we do it? And we have recently with uh, the vape pens, you know, when the, the medical uh, community jumped on board and said, hey, not only are the vape uh, pens really harmful to your lungs, but younger people that are real, you know, are being encouraged by the industry flavors uh, to go along with tobacco or flavors to go along with marijuana. And then, of course, when COVID hit, there was a, a direct link to uh, the vape pens actually introducing COVID in, into the lungs. I think that was one of the studies. And so the drop in the use of of e-cigarettes or vape pens um, actually curtailed quite a bit and, and dropped. And you even had some communities voting out uh, for its advertising or sale in, in cities proper. So is there a similar strategy that you see used on not just marijuana, but all, all drugs, the, the synthetics like fentanyl and and then the, the heroin and, and, and drugs of that sort. Do, is it possible for the public to say, okay, enough, you know, 700 overdose deaths in one city. Um, across America, we've probably seen the, the biggest spike in overdose, overdose deaths. What's, what's the strategy? What, what is the, who needs to be the leader? Is it the government, law enforcement, or the public? What, what's, what's the strategy? That's a, a fantastic question. Very important. Um, you know, Jim, I think personally, I feel that, uh, that we in law enforcement, despite a lot of narratives out there and, and people that, that actually seem to get more airtime than uh, they, they probably, it's more representative of who they actually, uh, they're the portion that actually is anti-cop. I think by and large, People are, are, are pro-police and they listen to their police officers. They, they, they have friends that they go to church with them. They're on their kid's softball team. So I think, I believe we should in law enforcement, we need to get the information game. And that can be law enforcement leaders and, and discussing this in public forums. That can just be uh, the individually law enforcement officers talking to this. I think that's a huge part. We, we are behind the information curve uh, right now. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, and, and, and it's not something that we have had to do traditionally. We just, we're law enforcement doesn't actually, I mean, they, they, they may go and, and you may have an FOP or an association that might look at certain laws and how they impact officers. But in terms of just addressing public policy and, and on the other side, there are just, there's a ton of money coming in from billionaires, uh, from Zuckerberg with his four dot us that actually are kind of, uh, out there pushing um, these narratives. And, and so what happens is, is people have seen, uh, seen the results. So I, I think we need to get the information out there. Um, and and it, it amazes me. Again, I'll, I'll go. It, the, the fact that, that anyone can actually be in these communities where crime is skyrocketing because of, of disorder 
and just say that 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 the that, that these notions work. It, it's, it reminds me of like again, I'll use an old reference, Baghdad Bob, back when I went kind of in a bit, but he's saying there are no tanks in Baghdad. There's a video of it happening. I mean, standing up and saying these things work uh, is is just uh, amazing to me. So I think we should uh, law enforcement should do that, and um, and we need to just get uh, the truth out. The, the, a lot of this is it, it, it's when I say it, it's misinformation. I mean, it, it absolutely is. Um, uh, it, if you kind of go back to prohibition, you know, and and when you say, well, what are you talking about? When you say legalizing drugs, I mean, are do, do you, unless someone's an absolutist, I'd, I'd say, okay, do you think some guy, somebody should be able to manufacture meth in their house with kids in it? leave the next door to you. Are you cool with that? And unless they say yes, which they're not going to sound ridiculous, but they'll say, no, of course not. So, okay. Now, all right. So now you've acknowledged that let's define the, the discussion. You acknowledge now that the government has a role in outlawing certain conduct because of externalities impacting other people. Okay. It's not uh, just, you know, harm to themselves that, that there's other things that happen. So now we just need to discuss, okay, is marijuana harmful? I mean, that's, and that's a debate we can have. I mean, now there's been a multitude of, uh, I mean, look, the, they, they, they were the advocates for, for marijuana have done a tremendous job in recasting marijuana as a medicine. And uh, in my opinion, that I think they got an assist from the media. Um, and, uh, you know, at least when they, they pushed the, the, the medicinal narrative here and it passed by popular vote, um, it was just stories in the media saying it was it was needed as pre presented to the to the uh, uh, public in Oklahoma as a binary choice. Either you're for children having seizures and if and, or you are some teetotaler wanting to outlaw marijuana. It's a false binary choice. Now, what was never part of discussion, nobody knew the American Society of Epilepsy, American Academy of Neurology, American Academy of Pediatrics, people that exist get up every day to protect children that have seizures vehemently oppose giving cannabis to kids. Hmm. It, it, without exception, it doesn't happen in college. There are no pediatric, pediatric neurologists in Colorado giving children CBD artisanal cannabis. There's been horrible results, but it's some parent saying um, that, that this is, uh, you know, it, my, my child's not a, uh, is not, is not a pothead. My, uh, these parents really sincerely believe that it will help them because these advocates have told them that. And same thing with opiates. I mean, they, they, they've actually put this out as, a, as an alternative to the opiate crisis. Now, all the research shows that marijuana use increases uh, uh, opiate, uh, opiate uh, overdoses and opiate addiction. Uh, of course, what the, what's the counter from the people? Well, they're just self-medicating. It's just it's, it's correlation, not causation. Unfortunately, they ignore a study involving, I think, like, I think it's 11,000 identical twins and fraternal twins where you can account for the exact same DNA, fraternal twins. Uh, you can account for the exact same born in the household, the same household, the same day, the same parents, and they, they can they can uh, they can adjust for that. And and that study showed that cannabis use uh, significantly increased everything from the opiates to mental health. And so they they kind of again those studies don't come out there. Uh, again, I mentioned the American Society of Addictive Medicine. People that a, a group of scientists that uh, study uh, addiction and they they vehemently oppose marijuana as any alternative to people with, with drug abuse problems, but that, that gets no airtime. It's just a parent. Someone says, Oh my gosh, it'll help a child. I'm kind of for that. And, uh, and, and so I think we have to kind of get that, uh, the information out there and, and it's, it's difficult to do because, uh, again, I, I mean, there'll be stories in the media that some, you know, they'll say, so-and-so mother says CBD cured her cancer and they never counted. They don't have an oncologist that goes out there and says, no, stoners did not find the cure to cancer that has eluded medicine for decades. They have not found that in, in, uh, in smoking a joint, but uh, that's just, that's kind of the challenge we face. And so uh, the easy part is information and facts are on our side. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people want to say, follow the science. I'm, I'm a scientist and, and, and science has been completely absent from a lot of this, uh, this stuff here. And so uh, the facts, the history, uh, and experience. I mean, and that's why I think law enforcement, we are the most equipped. You and I know about, uh, again, the history of how we addressed meth labs because we were part of the law, enforce law enforcement community that dealt with it. And that's why I really think that's the, if it, the best thing we can do is take, we are in the trenches every day and, and doing that. Mm -hmm. Why we need to kind of uh, use that, that, get that information out to other people. I think that when, every time I speak to 
civic groups, uh, teachers, when you show them the facts, I mean, don't is again, it's the, the, you know, what's about marijuana, mental illness. Don't, don't just say, well, cops say, I mean, the national Academy of sciences, right? 190 Nobel prize winners, national Academy of sciences, the, 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 the most comprehensive study of marijuana and uh, cannabis use and found a number of findings, the lead, which was on mental health. Cannabis use leads to psychosis and other mental illness. And the greater the use, the greater the, uh, the risk, which is a basic. And that's one component of this with, with the whole marijuana uh, issue is, you know, uh, Jim, your state out there, w- once California had the medical paradigm, we can't go get, you can't go get, well, you know, weed at, at Walgreens. So they regulated it by the plant. And they said, okay, and you can have this much. And, they, and so then we have this, you know, the domestic cannabis industriousness. They said, ah, by the plant, you say, by volume. So what they focused all their attention on making super weed. So when I started in 96, good weed, all right, stuff came south of the border. Good weed was 3% THC. It's about one to two in the 70s. But from what the cartels did in South America, it got to about 3%. That was the good stuff. Flower marijuana domestically produced is 20% THC. So what does that mean? That means that smoking a joint today is like smoking seven joints in 1996. It's like actually smoking 10 from the Woodstock era. So a lot of people say, well, I have weed's not that bad. And that, that's where that is. And that's where the TA, and that, that's nothing to do with edibles. We take it all on board, what the scientists calls, you know, bioavailability uh, or dabbing. And the hundred percent, the concentrates we see uh, with the extraction methods. And so epidemiology will say X causes Y, more X causes more Y. Uh, you know, if smoking causes cancer, the more you smoke, the more it will cause cancer. Okay. If THC leads to psychosis and mental illness and drug addiction, more THC will lead to more psychosis, mental illness, and addiction. So we kind of ask ourselves, what has the West Coast done? That, that in a thriving economy, a, a, a completely epidemic homeless problem, what has the West Coast done that we know that science, that Nobel Prize winners, right, that, that these scientists have said, we know leads to severe mental illness and drug addiction. Is there anything the West Coast has done that, 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 you know, people will at least acknowledge we have a huge mental illness and drug addiction problem in the homeless community. They'll acknowledge that. Fine, it took a while. They used, used to call it housing crisis a couple of years ago. I mean, finally, whenever guys are just freaking, you know, banging heroin and taking a dump on the street, I guess at that point they have to kind of say, well, look, it may not just be they don't have housing here. And so they got to that point. And, but no one says, why do we have that? Why is there 10, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have this, this, this horrible drug addiction problem. We didn't have severe psychosis. What is it that we have done? And is there anything science has said? And it just, God, I mean, that's, it's just maddening to me, those simple dots we can't connect. And so anyway, that's why if you can tell, it gets me kind of wound up. Um, uh, if I speak, I start sweating because I get wound up. And you can imagine that's why this has led me not to sleep a lot um, at night because uh, it gets me kind of very concerning. Because I, 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 I do think it is a huge threat to uh, the public safety and the world we're going to leave our children. Yeah, well, do not apologize because I think every law enforcement listener out there wishes they had prosecutors like you with the passion that you have about the problem and the issues and, and you actually have an idea of, of how to get to the public. And in wrapping up, so we're talking about uh, this this legalization or decriminalization phase that we're in now and how it it there's a domino effect with uh, street crime and property crime on the rise in most big cities. There, there might be some links between the, the legalization because every time we legalize or decriminalize a drug, we don't give it away for free. So there's a cost somewhere. And I love your analogy that uh, people aren't saying, oh, I'll give up my gym membership or my uh, premium channel uh, so that I could carve out enough money for, for my drug use. So that's clearly not happening. Um, so you're talking about information to the public. You're talking about getting the expert information out, medical and research studies. Um, yeah, I think those are all good strategies. I think, you know, when you talk back about the meth lab and, and the environmental impact and then the, the possibility of explosions, you know, when it comes to marijuana, you know, of course, everyone will minimize the effects of marijuana. You point out some really good studies about the impact of psychosis and, and the prenatal effect and things like that. 
Um, you know, it wasn't until I went to a conference um, conducted by Keith Graves, uh, one of our own experts, uh, who, who's also an author on uh, Police One. And when he talked about the, the making of honey oil, I don't know if you've had that experience, but uh, using uh, butane to uh, render the THC and, and when you talk to Keith, he, he talks about, you talk about 20%, he goes into the 60, 70% THC concentration after the honey oil. Um, and it also has a environmental and, and possibly explosive effect uh, in, in the rendering of THC from marijuana. Um, so in your final thoughts, um, what's, what's your big, um, trend in Oklahoma? What are you seeing and, and how are you combating it? Um, so we are in the beginning stages of a uh, medicinal paradigm in Oklahoma. And so what we're seeing is, uh, I just, it doesn't take very long, a, uh, without exception in the Tulsa area and uh, at least two of our county seats I know of, and I just haven't checked on the third, we're having an increase in the homeless problem. Uh, we are having a number of uh, incidents of uh, individuals going through uh, uh, severe psychotic events by uh, trying THC. Uh, we, and, and oftentimes, I mean, we, we've got autopsies of, uh, you know, officers be fighting somebody with no injuries and the use of force. And, they, and, uh, and as we review this, a kind of, of a use of force uh, investigation in our office, as, as we do, is it possibly in custody death? You know, it's, it's a, a, psychotic, a psychotic event that someone's having uh, in a jail just going uh, crazy. Uh, it's a lady with no history of mental, mental illness decided to try marijuana instead of uh, opiates and uh, just had this, you know, they, of course, for some reason, I don't know, understand this. And I, all of our people that are going through psychotic events on THC take off their clothes and get naked. I don't know what that is. There's something weird with that. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that. And again, didn't see that a few years ago. It's, it's not like there, there's a psychosis with meth. It's a paranoia. It's a little bit different, but these, these complete dissociations with reality. And we're seeing that at, at hospitals and everything. So, so that's where that is. Um, uh, and we just have a, a, a large amount of, uh, we're getting intel of marijuana that is produced from the wholesalers uh, and being diverted um, and I hate you because again, our, our, for us, diversion is legally manufactured drugs like uh, pharmaceuticals diverted to the underground. I hate to even use diversion with, with marijuana um, because it's, it just baffles me, but it's being uh, created under the, uh, it, and what we found is in Colorado, same thing, uh, Oregon, California, Washington, the, the, the opposite effect happens as promised. You know, the, the ideas with, with marijuana, if you legalize marijuana, eliminate the black market, what it has done, it, it has, it has, exponentially increased the black market has given some, given them a, an ability to, to do that. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't think we, preliminarily we don't have the, the information yet, but, you know, California, Washington, Oregon, all of them, they know, they know they produce uh, four to five times the marijuana that be, can be consumed at maximum capacity. They know that that's, that's the way they know that wholesalers are, are, are and growers are doing. And so again, but what has happened is the West Coast and now Colorado, they basically supplied the entire nation with uh, high-grade marijuana, such they ran the cartels out of business, which is not, I mean, we've just kind of moved the, the black market up here and then all of the, the crimes have, uh, have gone um, in Colorado. I mean, there's, there's, there's reports in uh, uh, the Oregon Haida uh, group did a report on legalization impacts. Um, Colorado did one. Uh, you know, and I'll tell you one of the things I'd say, this, the, the, and this is information, a, a, a good friend of mine, he's actually an author of a great book on, uh, on, on drug policy, a guy named Jeff Stom. And, and Jeff is the executive director of Midwest uh, Haida. And they did a report, came out just uh, about a year ago, and on, on the effects of relationship between drugs and crime in the Haida area and doing that. And in doing that, they found 59% of property crime is drug related. Um, there were, uh, 43% of the homicides are related to drugs. And so, uh, again, and that's, that's, that's not surprising. I mean, again, people are not breaking into cars to, they're, they're funding it. They fund, I mean, homeless people use drugs. They have no job. Where do you think they get it? I mean, it's pretty, it's not hard to do that. And so again, what we, it just, and it's just, it's really not some kind of complicated academic theory is once you legalize the use rates go up 
people use more, they use more, they have everywhere. And so in every, whatever that relationship is, and it's very high um, between drugs and drug use does not exist in a vacuum with property crime. They will try to say drugs and our thefts have skyrocketed. We have, we have retailers with 300% inventory loss since we did our kind of our version of proposition 47. And the people pushing us, well, that's not, uh, look at the, the reported thefts aren't, aren't as much, but it's hard to catch people. And so, mm-hmm. the, look, the merchants say inventory loss is up dramatically. And so, we know that connection. We've just got to get that information out there to realize that, look, relapse, when someone is in, is in rehab and, and the relapse rates are just, the treatment has not worked. There's more treatment now and more drug use than ever. It just, it's just, and again, we define work. No one knows what that is. Uh, because, again, they, they, they can't define, everyone says, treatment works. Well, they don't define it. Is it if you start? Is it if you complete? If you complete the program? I mean, 70 to 80% of people drop out of treatment in three to six months, 70 to 80%. Hmm. Well, they don't include those. They're saying if you, if you completed it works. So that's why it's not as good as advertised as this panacea. And just so we know, relapse is a euphemism. If you're going back on drugs again, you're victimizing somebody. I mean, Hmm. and and to fund that. And so we get that information out there. Uh, it's important. And I think people are receptive. It's just, we're going to have to do it on our own because it's, it's not what we know every day and see, uh, it's not going to get out there. That's why I, kind of my plea to our brothers and sisters in, in public safety across the board. Well, thanks. Thanks for your time today, Brian Serber from Oklahoma and uh, assistant district attorney there. And uh, we look forward to reading your books. We're going to uh, insert a link on where we can find your books and maybe an excerpt or two. Um, your accolades are well-deserved and we appreciate the work that you do for law enforcement in Oklahoma and, and your books for the rest of us and the rest of the country. Thanks so much. Hey, Jim, thank you. You do a great job. And, I, and again, I, I appreciate, I think your, your writing is fantastic and we just need more people like you that, are, that, uh, that can intellectually discuss this from a point of experience. And uh, I, I do appreciate that. I think you do a great job and uh, more like you are needed. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Well, to our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question. Do you have a good relationship with your local prosecutor? Um, Do you have the ability to charge cases federally? Uh, Do you know your federal prosecutors? Well, take a look at Brian's publications. They may be helpful in developing prosecution strategies and everyday policing. And we'd love to hear from you. So drop us an email or write a note under the podcast, wherever you get it. And uh, write to us at policingmatters at policeone.com. That's policingmatters at policeone.com. I'm Jim Dudley. Stay safe. Be well. See you soon.